You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, you can look in the seats in front of you and find Isaiah 9 on page 573. And as you're turning there, I just want to, I know this is a busy time of the year. I know your calendars are full, but I want to look ahead into January and ask you to circle January 8th on your calendar. It's a Sunday evening. We'll meet here in the auditorium at 630. But we as elders want to unpack for you a vision that we have for the next three to five years that really centers on the two categories that we are passionate about. Category number one being planting churches Category number two being strengthening leaders. And so we've talked about that. That has been a vision that has driven us as a church, but we want to unpack some details about that for over the next three to five years, as well as this facility and this campus that I am confident you're going to be excited about. But we want you to be here. We want to be able to share that in detail so you can process it. We've been processing it for months, but we want you to be able to process it. We want to give you a venue so that you can ask questions, but we are confident that this is where the Lord wants to take us, and we want you to join us in our excitement. So January 8th, Sunday night, 630, right here in the auditorium. We hope you can make it. Well, Isaiah chapter 9 is where we are anchored, and and you know, Advent is one of those times of the year that really flows out of tradition. And tradition tells us that for four Sundays, we focus on a topic in each one of those Sundays that looks back on Jesus' first arrival and anticipates his second. And usually those topics are topics like hope and love and joy and peace. But I got to tell you, after doing this for several years, it's kind of hard to do it over and over again. You got to get creative. You've gone to the same well over and over again. And so this year, what we've done is we focused on Isaiah 9-6, a passage perhaps familiar to you through Handel's Messiah. But we want to focus on the four names that the child is given and just unpack them maybe in a fresh way that allows you to see how Jesus is the epicenter of all of redemptive history, but also all of Scripture. And so last week, we tied together the topic of hope with his name, Wonderful Counselor. And we talked about how wonderful means that it can only be explained as having its source in God himself. And that he is a counselor to give us advice and also instruct us with his decrees as king. And in so doing, that provides hope for us in these dark times. Well, this Sunday, we're going to focus on the next name, which is Mighty God. And so we we found a way to be able to connect that to the topic of love. And I want to share with you how we got there and then hopefully be able to show you through Scripture. Think back to instructors that you've had throughout your life. Maybe instructors like a coach or a teacher or a parent or maybe even a mentor. The ones that stick out to us are the ones who effectively gave us what we needed to be successful, isn't it? The ones who maybe took extra time. The ones who extended patience to us, the ones who made sure that we were supplied with everything that we needed to fulfill what we were being instructed to do. And and when those instructors did that, they communicated the care that they had for us. 
You know, the end game of instruction, the goal of instruction is action that demonstrates accurate understanding and effective application. So so as a teacher, my job isn't simply to teach you the information and then walk off the stage and say, job well done. My instruction has an end game of you applying the truth of God's word. Because when you apply the truth of God's word, you demonstrate that you understood it. Because to understand it means to naturally apply it. And so that's the end game of instruction. So, so my job, my task, my joy then is to every week prepare. Every week spend, spend hours studying the word of God, unpacking the languages, the history, how it fits in the big story, how the New Testament sheds light on these passages to accurately understand it, to reflect on it at a personal level, and then figure out how to construct it in a way that you'll understand it clearly to apply it in your lives. I do that not because it's my job, but because I love you. How much more, though, the example of the ultimate instructor and his ultimate love in giving the child who will be and is mighty God. Let me read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and then we'll unpack it together. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you look at your notes, you can see the big idea I see in these two verses is that the child promised to Israel is the ultimate expression of love of mighty God because he gives us exactly what we need. Now, the outline this week is similar to last week in that it is one long sentence that I hope once we understand the sentence, it will serve us throughout the week and the weeks to come to understand the love of God that is communicated in his being mighty God. The beginning of the sentence goes like this. On our own, we continually fail to meet the requirements. On our own, we continually fail to meet the requirements. Now, for the last two Sundays, we've anchored in the Old Testament, a section of the Bible that maybe some of you would think odd, that we would focus on Jesus, his first arrival, and anticipate his second to anchor into the Old Testament might seem odd because we might be tempted to think that Jesus is primarily focused in the New Testament and his second coming is limited to the New Testament. So, So why spend all of this time focusing on Israel, focusing last week on King Ahaz and the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms and Syria and and Assyria? Why are we spending all of this time? Let me give you a verse that actually answers that question. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul is reviewing a lot of the stories of the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But he says this comment. He says, these things took place as examples. 
One of the primary purposes of the Old Testament is to get examples. Examples that point us to the character of God, examples that point us to the human condition, but examples that that leave us expecting a Savior. And by those examples, what the Old Testament does is it whets our appetite, It, it increases our expectation that Jesus is the center of everything. That is the point of the Old Testament. So when we study all of these chapters, all of these books that unpack stories of the nation of Israel, they serve as their purpose, not just a history lesson, but to show us the character of God, the humanity of man, and why Jesus is the center of everything. And so Isaiah 8 and 9 provide just that, examples of the character of God, the humanity of man, and the centrality of Christ in everything. Here's Israel's history. They were given everything that they needed, weren't they? They were given signs. In fact, King Ahaz was given a sign, and the house of David was given a sign, and Judah was given a sign that when the child of Isaiah chapter 8 had been less than two years old, the impossible enemy that was gathering against them would actually be defeated. They had been given that. They had been given prophets. They had been given kings. They had been given clear instruction by God what to do. But time and time again, they failed to meet the requirements. In fact, think back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God handpicked Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, Abraham, I want you to go to the land I will show you. And he took his family and they went down to the land and they set up altars and they set up tents and everything seemed to be looking good. But then there was a famine on the land, in the land. And do you remember where Abraham and Sarah went? They went down to Egypt But when they arrived in Egypt, Abraham, the man of God, the man who had been chosen by God, who had been given what he needed to meet the requirements, he failed, didn't he? And he lied to Pharaoh and created a a perfect storm for Egypt. And it didn't just stop there. It continued with the patriarchs. It continued with Moses. It continued with the prophets, priests, and kings for generation after generation. Instruction, response, Failure, repentance, over and over and over again. Israel proving that on their own, they failed to meet the requirements. Look at verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 8. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. What Isaiah is doing here is he's saying there's going to come a time when Israel, you will prove once again to be hypocrites. The people will say the solution to your problem of the enemy's coming is to go to magicians, go to necromancers, go to witches, something that the the law of Moses forbid. You can write down Leviticus chapter 19. The law of God forbid that this would be the place where God's people would go for solutions. But this is what we do, isn't it? When we face trials in our lives, when we start to become overwhelmed, we, we typically go to what the world goes to. We try to deny it. We try to numb it. We try to go to people who will tell us what we want to hear. And we, like Israel, prove once and again that we fail to meet the requirements on our own. You see, every one of us on our own is what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 
Every one of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us walked according to the rules of the world. Every one of us walked according to our lusts and our desires. Every one of us fall into this category. Therefore, like Israel, every one of us continually fail to meet the requirements on our own. And Israel is the example of that. Which brings us to number two. Because this is what is required. So if we are saying that everyone fails to meet the requirements, then we must establish then what is required. And it's actually in chapters 8 and 9. Look at what Isaiah says God expects of God's people. Verse 11 of chapter 8, you walk by faith and not by sight. Which, by the way, let me just pause here for a second because I think faith is often misunderstood. I hear college students or high school students that are getting ready for college talk about a leap of faith. I hear people who are dating saying, well, I've just got to take a leap of faith. I hear adults who are thinking about job changes and they say, well, I've got to take a leap of faith. But here's what they typically mean. They typically mean cover your eyes and then jump off the stage. That's not what a leap of faith is. When you study the Bible, you understand faith is always a faith that is informed. It is never a blind faith. It is never a deaf faith. It is never taking a leap without actually considering where you're leaping, considering what God says about the leap. And so what God is saying to the people of God in Isaiah 8 is, you are to walk by faith, not by horizontal sight, not by fleshly sight. Not by the desires of the flesh sight. You are to walk by a faith that is informed by God's word. Verse 12. Don't be terrified the way that the world is terrified. Do you know the Bible talks about fear almost more than it does any other topic? And constantly in the Bible, we are told, do not fear. But here's what it means. It doesn't mean do not fear at all. It means do not fear like the world fears. The world fears with horizontal definitions, horizontal expectations, horizontal solutions. But we are to fear being educated by the word of God. Isn't it interesting? We keep coming back to that. The people of God are not to be terrified the way that the world is terrified. Verse 13 of chapter 8, we are to honor the capital K king, not the lowercase king. Yes, we are to respect those in authority over us. But for us to honor, for us to worship, for us to submit ourselves, we ultimately submit ourselves to the uppercase K king. Verse 14, we are to place our security in Christ, not our 401ks. Verse 16, we are to study, to understand, and to keep the word of God. See, this is what's expected of God's people. This is what's expected to keep the requirements. And listen, friends, on our own, we cannot do this. Israel is an example, but our lives are an example. How many of us who are even saved constantly are tempted to not do these things? How many of us who are saved settle back into our fleshly routines? We get lazy. Sin clouds our judgment. This is impossible for us. But then not only that, look at what it says in chapter 9 in verse 4. The yoke of his burden. Who is that? The enemy. 
The staff for his shoulder, the enemy. The rod of his oppressor, the enemy, must be broken, verse 4 says. Verse 5, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood, this is the enemy, what must be burned? Friends, this is the requirement, is that the enemy is defeated. Would you write that down? The requirement that God expects of his image bearer is that the enemy is defeated, but this is not a military enemy. This is not a political enemy. This is not an economic enemy. This is a spiritual enemy. You can write down Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul peels back the curtains of everything that we can see with our physical eyes, doesn't he? And he says, we do not wrestle against principalities, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And what he reminds us is that the military enemies in this world, the political enemies in this world, the economic enemies in this world, all of the enemies that are real and that we can see actually have something behind them. And it's spiritual in nature. King Solomon does this in Ecclesiastes, doesn't he? He talks about all of the horizontal things that we can see, all of the things that glitter in this world, all of the things that weigh us down. And he says what's going on behind the scenes is that God is there. What's going on behind the scenes is that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spiritual. Revelation actually talks about that. We're studying that when we get done with Advent is that what we see with our eyes of all of the conflict that we can see and understand that is physical, that is on the news, that is in our lives, yes, it's real, but behind all of that is a spiritual enemy. And what Isaiah is reminding the people of God is that God expects us to defeat this enemy. I don't know about you, but I can't do this on my own. In fact, listen to what Jonathan Edwards says a mature believer should look like. This is from his works, volume one. It says, as he, as the Christian, has more holy boldness, so he has less self-confidence. As he is more sure than others of deliverance from hell, so he has a greater sense that he deserves it. He is less apt to be shaken in his faith, but more apt than others to be moved by solemn warnings, God's frowns, and the calamities of others. He has the firmest comfort, but the softest heart. Richer than others, but poorest of all in spirit. He is the tallest and strongest saint, but the least and tenderest child among them. I'll tell you what, I'm not there. And the only one who ultimately and perfectly was there is Christ himself. So so in this, what we should see when we look in the mirror of Scripture, when we look in the mirror of the history of Israel and we see God and who he is, we see us and who we are, and we understand that there must be an answer because we cannot meet the requirements because the requirement that God has for his image bearers is to defeat this impossible enemy to defeat our sin, and to defeat Satan. So we continually fail to meet the requirements on our own because this is the requirement, which brings us to the end of the sentence, number three, this is who we need. This is who we need. 
You see the cycle of Israel. They had been given everything that they needed, and yet verse 19 of chapter 8 reminds us they're once again going to go to the world for the solution. But there's verbs actually in verse 4 and 5 that helps us understand what Isaiah and God are saying here. We cannot defeat the enemy. It is impossible for us. We need someone else. Verse 5 says, I'm sorry, verse 4 says, the enemy will have been broken. That's what the tense of the verb says. The enemy will have been broken. Verse 5, the enemy will have been burnt. So it's something that has to happen outside of the individuals in verses 2 and 3 that are experiencing the victory. So who is it? Well, we actually are introduced to him in verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. And then verses 4 and 5, you have broken and you have burned. See, this sets us up to understand that we cannot fulfill the requirements. We need a who. And that who is who is introduced in verse 6. In the Hebrew, the first word has the priority. And in the Hebrew, the first word is child. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't necessarily come across with that emphasis in the English translation. But in the Hebrew, it would have said a child as the first Word. In fact, that would have drawn the attention of the readers. And the readers would not necessarily have been ultimately surprised by this because there's already been mention of a child, hasn't there? Go back to Isaiah 7. We studied this last week, but for those of you who weren't here, and just by way of review, King Ahaz and all of the nation of Judah were facing a, an impossible enemy. Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were defeating every city that was in their path as they made their way toward Jerusalem. And understandably so, all of Judah was fearful. King Ahaz was fearful. And so Isaiah the prophet came to the king and said, listen, God is still with us. In fact, you can ask for a sign, whatever sign you want, as high as the heavens, as low as the earth, ask for a sign and it will prove that God is with us. And Ahaz refused. And so God said, I will give you a sign. Verse 14, the virgin will conceive and will bring forth a son, a child. And then the verses that follow say that before this child is able to understand the difference between good and evil before the child is able to say, father or mother, the enemy that is impossible will be defeated. This is the child of Isaiah 7, 14, but now we see another child. Now, before I continue to unpack the child of chapter 9, verse 6, some of you might be thinking, okay, pastor, are you saying that Isaiah 7, 14 is not about Jesus? And I'm not saying that. But I want to actually educate us on prophecy and two categories of prophecy. So bear with me on this, but I hope this will help us better understand prophecy in the Bible. There is the category of a direct prophecy. And here's how I would describe direct. It's a prophecy with specific details of a specific literal event. A direct prophecy are prophecies of specific details that will be fulfilled in a direct, literal event. By way of illustration, that is the child of Isaiah 8. 
All you have to do is look at context, and you see the context of Isaiah 7.14. The details of Isaiah 7.14 and the verses that follow are directly and literally fulfilled in Isaiah 8.1-10. So the direct prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 is directly fulfilled in the child of Isaiah 8. So what's the second category, and how does that apply to Jesus? Well, it's this, pattern or type prophecies. This is a prophecy pattern that is applied to an indirect event. This is a pattern of prophecy or prophecy patterns that are applied to an indirect event. Let me illustrate that by inviting you to turn to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Matthew 1 is the Apostle Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. It's a very interesting and intentional account. And he's actually setting up the way to understand the Old and the New Testament, the way to interpret scriptures by the way that he unpacks Jesus' birth. But look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. All this, what is this? This is the virgin who conceives. He uses terms that are specific in the Greek to a woman who, a woman who has never been intimate with a man. As he's explaining this, he says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what Matthew does here is he actually quotes almost exactly Isaiah 7, 14. And he says this, Jesus' birth, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. But I submit to you what he's saying is that it is a pattern fulfillment. It is a typological fulfillment. And here's how I would explain that. Look at what Joseph and Mary actually name Jesus. They don't name him Emmanuel, do they? They name him Jesus. Matthew has gone to great lengths to show that this is not just a young woman who has a child. This is a literal virgin. It's never happened before. It will never happen since. And then look at what he says. The name Jesus means he will save his people from their what? Look at the text. Their sins. So so here's what I think Matthew is doing. Is he saying to his readers, do you remember back in the Old Testament when Judah was experiencing an enemy that was impossible? Do you remember when it looked like all of God's promises and his character were going to fail? Do you remember that God used a child back then? who would be evidence symbolically that God was with them. And do you remember, reader of the Gospel of Matthew, that history tells us this all took place? Matthew then says, I'm showing you that that pattern is happening once again, but even greater. Why? Because this woman is a literal virgin. Because this man, this child, is not a symbol of God being with us. He's actually God in human flesh. And this child has come not to save you from your political enemies, but from the spiritual enemy of your sin and Satan himself. So do I believe Isaiah 7:14 refers to Jesus? Absolutely, but indirectly so. So then we get to Isaiah 9, and we see another child is introduced to us. So how do we know whether this is direct or pattern fulfillment? 
And context answers this. Context tells us that as Isaiah 9 is unpacked, there's not individual nations that are described. There's not historical events immediately following. This is looking way into the future for the fulfillment. This is the direct prophecy that would be directly fulfilled in Christ. Verse 6, a child is born, a son is given. Have you ever read that and wondered why Isaiah repeats it in two different ways? I mean, wouldn't it have been enough for Isaiah to say a child is born and then move on? Wouldn't it have been enough for Isaiah to say a son is given and move on? Well, he repeats it to draw attention to the readers that this is going to be a royal son, that this is going to be a legal and kingly heir to the throne of David. And he says in verse 6, he'll be a wonderful counselor, but then he says mighty God. The word mighty means hero powerful. You know what's interesting about this, friends, is that this verse is never repeated in the New Testament. I find that interesting because so many verses that we say are about Jesus in the Old Testament. Think of Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the nation, out of you will come a ruler. We see that repeated in the New Testament. We see Isaiah 7.14 repeated in the New Testament. We see other prophecies in the Old Testament that we know have reference to Jesus repeated in the New Testament. We never see Isaiah 9.6 repeated in the New Testament. I will say that I do think there's allusions. You can write these down. Luke 2.11. The angels tell the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. That sounds like Isaiah 9.6. Mark 4, 4. Mark 4.41, the disciples were in the boat on the Lake of Galilee. After the massive storm that instantly came up, Jesus instantly calmed it. And remember the disciples said to each other, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey. There's reference to deity there. Mark 9 tells us about the Mount of Transfiguration. There's plenty of things in the New Testament that tell us that the child, that Jesus is God himself. But this verse in Isaiah 9-6 is never directly quoted in the New Testament. What is the application of all of this? The application can actually be derived from Marvel movies. What happens in Marvel movies when an enemy cannot be defeated by humanity? I mean, they pull out all of the weapons, they pull out all of the military, they pull out all of their strategies, but that enemy cannot be defeated. They need a hero, don't they? The hero comes and saves the day. Well, in a similar fashion, as we've unpacked this long sentence in our outline, we find ourselves in the same context. And that is, we continually fail to meet the requirements on our own. The requirements are, we must, beat the, we must defeat the impossible enemy. So we need a hero. We need a who. But unlike the Avengers who come and fight the battle themselves, and everybody just sits back and watches, the gospel is different. The mighty God came and defeated the enemy we could not defeat, but then gives us the tools that he used so we can wage the war ourselves and gain victory in his power. And I want you to see this in verse 7. Here's how I see that. It says at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word zeal means to be red in the face. 
When you're red in the face, it means you're passionate about something. What is God passionate about? What makes him be red in the face? Our salvation. Our being able to defeat the impossible enemy. And what God has blessed us with is a child who is mighty God, who has defeated the enemy, gives us the tools we need to, in his power, defeat the enemy. This is the ultimate expression of love because he supplies us with everything that we need. And it should cause us to do what back in chapter 9, verse 3, the nation will do. It says that you have increased its joy. They will rejoice before you with a joy at harvest because they are glad when they divide the spoil. The context there is that in the ancient world, agriculture was life, wasn't it? I mean, if you did not have a good crop, it could mean the difference between life and death. So in that context, when a harvest was complete and the storehouses were full, they would rejoice and there were festivals. But most of us can't relate to that, right? We just go to the grocery store and we have 25 different cans of beans to choose from. So let me give you an analogy that maybe at least 60% of you will get. It's what happens when you win a Super Bowl. And you've put all of that work in the offseason. You've spent the time in the preseason. You've gone into the training room and you've iced your sore muscles. You've dealt with the media. You've dealt with the fans. You've had your games you were expected to win that you lose. And those games that were a battle that you win ugly and you get to the very end and you win it all. And you come back into the locker room and there is a celebration Job well done. We did it. Victory. This is what mighty God is intended to communicate to us. That we on our own cannot gain the victory and we fail over and over and over again when we try to do it on our own. But God gave us a child who is mighty God, who has gained the victory and empowers us to do so in his strength.